At this time, the children and youth are dismissed. Um, good morning, everyone. See, I sang your praises in the first service. Whenever I say good morning in the first service, they just look at me. And I was like, in this thing called America, when we say good morning, we expect you to say good morning back, you know? Um, but good morning. Uh, this, this morning, I'm actually I'm really excited to tell this story. Uh, but it's the story of one of my favorite characters in all scripture, um, a man by the name of Ebed Melech. And we'll be looking at his story in Jeremiah 38. Um, and as I was thinking about the story and kind of piecing it together, um, I thought about how, like, in telling his story, this is someone who maybe not as familiar to most people who are very Bible-believing, read their Bible every day. It's just not one of those ones that rattle off the, the, the tip of the tongue, right? So I thought about how it was the legend of Ebed Melech. And, and as I started thinking about, like, that's what you, you, you call stories is legends. But I was thinking about the word legend itself and how it's one of those weird words in English in that, like, the secondary meaning of legend is kind of the one we use first, right? When I say legend or, or you think of someone who's legendary or someone who had a legendary performance, you don't necessarily think of, like, a traditional story that is maybe popularized over time. Time, right? Like you think about legends like, you know, Michael Jordan, right? Like for me, when I say legend, that's what I think of, right? You think of Michael Jordan, um, six NBA titles, six finals MVPs. You think about a guy who made trainers, sneakers, sneakers, kicks, right? Who taught us that you don't wear sneakers to play basketball, you want them to go to school, right? Like you match them with your outfit, not your jersey. Um, but it's someone who was very iconic, right? The bald head, the tongue, uh, it's Michael Jordan, that's a legend, right? Or you think of Aretha Franklin, right? Aretha Franklin last year, um, I think it was Rolling Stone, said she has the greatest voice of all time. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> There's billions of people on the planet here, right? There's billions who've lived and gone on, billions to come, and it's like, if you get ranked number one, you must be doing something, right? In a write-up for Aretha Franklin, they said she was a force of nature, she was a gift from heaven, she was a genius, right? And if you look at her career, it, it kind of makes sense. There, there's not an area of music that she ventured into that she didn't dominate, right? We call her the queen of soul, but she started off in gospel, dominated there. Then she went to pop, right? Did a little bit of jazz, right? Like then did soul and R&B. Like she just dominated everything, right? So when I think of legend or legend of Ebed Melech, I think about these legendary people, right? But, but, but because they're legendary people, they also kind of have that primary meaning of legend, which is story, right? And, and so growing up, I remember when Michael Jordan had the flu game, right? Uh, for some of you, you might not remember this, but I remember the flu game. I was a teenager and, and this was the story we were told, right? Mike woke up in the middle of the night the game before. He was sweating, Right? Like he was just, he had the sweats and he had no energy and he just felt terrible. And, 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 and in fact, like he couldn't sleep all day. The doctors came in, his personal trainer came in and said, Mike, you can't play today, Mike. You can't play, right? But he's Michael Jordan, right? So he finally got to sleep and he wakes up at 550. You know, he's in Salt Lake City. There's not much to do anyway, right? But he's in Salt Lake City, 550, games at seven, right? And, and the story is that they literally have to drag him to the game and Mike shows up seven o'clock. And I don't know if you remember the game, but I do, right? It wasn't typical Michael Jordan the first quarter. Like, he was just dragging. Like, you thought he was giving it all, but he just had nothing, right? Uh, but then he's Michael Jordan, <laughs> you know? So eventually he realizes, I'm Michael Jordan, right? And, and he ends up scoring, like, 38 points, 5 assists. Not that I remember. I do remember. 38 points, 5 assists, right? And, and, and actually towards the end of the game, he hits this big three-pointer that kind of seals everything, right? And then they get a stop, and they get the rebound. And there's this iconic picture of Mike finally, like, it's like he gave it his all, and he's just down, right? And, and Scottie Pippen and literally like it's hovering like holding on to him as he drags him off the floor legendary right and then you find out years later that it wasn't the flu 
You know, he ordered some pizza and ate it late at night and had the food poisoning. You know, it wasn't like the flu. It was food poisoning, right? But the legend still lives on. We don't call it the food poisoning game, right? We call it the, the, the flu game, right? Aretha is another one. Like I said, she's a legend. Now, uh, allegedly, right? I, don't, I, wasn't, I wasn't in the studio. But allegedly, every time Aretha really wanted to record, she required two things. Okay, three things. One, fried chicken, cheeseburger. No matter what time of day it was, no matter where she was, like she wanted a fried chicken and cheeseburger, and she would not record until she got her fried chicken and cheeseburger. And then after she ate it, or as she ate it, the other thing that I had to do is the, that the temperature of the studio had to be 90 degrees. No matter what the weather was outside, it had to be 90 degrees in the studio. And for a, long, a decent part of her career before she moved back home to Detroit, she was in L.A. And I don't know if you've ever been to Los Angeles, but they don't really have, like, plug-in heaters, right? So, like, she would literally not record until somebody, a manager, an intern, somebody found plugged-in heaters. And then she would sit there, and then whenever she said it was 90 degrees, and she ate her fried chicken, and she ate her burger, she was ready to go, right? Like, Aretha, and I'm like, if you're Aretha Franklin, the greatest voice of all time, you get to do this stuff, right? Like, if I did that, no one would listen. But Aretha, you get to do that, right? So, so this is kind of what we think about legends, right? Like these people who we admire or who do these great things, and then the stories that are in and around them, right? Tomorrow we celebrate another legend, right? Martin Luther King Jr. And when we think about Martin Luther King, one of the things that's always frustrated me ever since I was a kid is that we as a culture have so divorced him from his Christianity. Right? Like, they'll be like, Martin Luther King followed the cause of nonviolence that he learned from Gandhi. I think he may have met Gandhi once. Followed Jesus for over 40 years, right? Like, I just, I feel like Gandhi was very important, but like, Jesus was the one he worshiped. Jesus was his Lord and Savior. Jesus was the one who lived a whole life, right? And then there's the other one, not to, you know, step on Gandhi too much. Jesus loved everyone. Gandhi didn't quite love everyone, but we could talk about that over lunch, right? But, like, that's who he followed. And when we think about King, we kind of limit it to this, this dream, right? But I think we as brethren in Christ, as Anabaptists, as Jesus followers, we do better to not just do the legend of Martin, but to actually read the whole canon of Martin Luther King, right? If we truly value what it means to, to choose life, right, and what it means to, to be people who don't choose violence, I think we ought to all memorize and read Beyond Vietnam, if we really want to fight for racial justice as Christians, I think it would do well for us to read Letter from a Birmingham Jail, which he writes to the white church and saying, how come you're not joining in on this? If we really want to, to say that like everybody matters and we need to work for the, the justice of everyone, I think it would behoove us, right, to read The Other America, where he says, you don't see it, but I see it. We live in two different Americas, right? So I think it would do better for us to look at Dr. King, not only as this person who says, I have a dream, but to look at the whole canon and to see how his Christian witness helped him fight for others. Because King wasn't just an academic, he was a servant. A servant. But one of the, my favorite legends of Dr. King, it actually comes in I have a dream. Right? If you've ever read the full canon of Dr. King, I don't know what happened in education between like when I was born in 1983 and when he was in school, but I just felt like they got better education than we did, right? Like they quote people like, I'm just like, who is that? Like who are these people you're talking about? Like just normally, right? And, and Dr. King is very much an academic, and that's something that's interestingly been attacked over the years. But I'm like, study his work, you'll see it. So when he's giving the I Have a Dream speech, it's different for us. Like when I got that speech as a kid, I was inspired, I was feeling, I'm like, this is amazing, right? Well, apparently there were people who were up on the stage with him who looked at the crowd of 250,000 and just like, I'm not sure they're getting it, Martin. Like, I feel like you're up there. Like, you're just, 
you're using all these big words and these concepts, promissory note, like we don't know what that is. Like we want to fight, we want to drink at the water fountain, Martin, right? Like, like what are you talking about, right? So there's all these things that he's saying, and then there's, a, there's this legend that behind him was Lady Mima Mahalia Jackson, who I would say is the greatest gospel singer of all time, right? And incidentally, she babysat Aretha Franklin, little tidbit for you for today, right? Um, so Mahalia is sitting behind him, and he's just like, oh, here, Martin, go again. Martin, tell him about the dream, right? And he's just like, what? Tell him about the dream. He's like, I have a speech. Tell him about the dream. He's like, I have a dream. And that's how he kicks into it, right? Like the legend is that if it wasn't for Mahalia, we would have had a great speech, but it may not have made the same impact as Mahalia had had him talk about and, and use that I have a dream, like, like that whole thing. Like she, he had heard him use it before, and she's like, I actually think this will be helpful, right? And, and so when she says, tell him about the dream, that's how he goes into I have a dream, right? So that's the legend of Martin Luther King. All of that to say is, I think Ebed-Melech should be a legend for all Christians. I think if we are people who are, are, are excited about what the family of God truly looks like, what does racial justice truly look like, and that everybody has a place at God's table, I think we ought to know Ebed-Melech. Why? Because he's mysterious. There's not much we know about him. In fact, the entire biblical text of Ebed-Melech is, is what we're going to look at in Jeremiah today, and then two verses in the next chapter. That's it. Right? The other thing about Ibad Malik is that he's an outsider. You know, we learn in the story that he's from Cush. Right? Some translations will call it Ethiopia, right? It's not the Ethiopia that we think of in the Horn of Africa. Cush or Nubia, um, these were people who were either upper Nile region or, or south. So there's a good chance that this Ibad Malik we're talking about had a complexion closer to mine. Right? So this is maybe a sub-Saharan black African who's in the Old Testament in Jeremiah's time. Right? So he's this outsider. He is mysterious. But what you learn about Ebed-Melech is that, one, he was faithful, and two, he was a servant. And I think that's something we all ought to be holding on to. Now, for a lot of theologians, when they hear about Ebed-Melech, he's a footnote in the Jeremiah story. Right? It's just like, yeah, that, that happened. Right? Fascinating thing about Jeremiah is that his entire story, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but I think Ebed-Melech himself is foundational to our understanding of God. Because there's something that Ebed-Melech does that is beautiful, and we'll see it in our story today. But there's a reason I think it's foundational God's story, because I think when we learn about Ebed-Melech, we learn about a God who's bigger than what we see. We learn about a God whose world, whose family is bigger than who we know. And we learn about a God who says, there's a place for everyone at my table, and all of you are needed to do my work. So that's the legend of Ebed-Melech, right? And let's read about it. We're going to be in Jeremiah 38. I believe we'll have it up front so you can follow along up there, or you can open up in your scripture. I'm reading from the NIV, and we'll be doing verses 1 to 13, starting at verse 1. Shepatiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Pashur, Jehukul, son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, son of Malkjah, heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, This is what the Lord says Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians, some translation will say Chaldeans, will live. They will escape with their lives, they will live. And this is what the Lord says This city, speaking of Jerusalem, will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. Then the officials, some translation will say princes, then the officials said to the king, This man should be put to death. 
He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city, as well as all the people, by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. But Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, an official, some translations will say eunuch, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite, take 30 men from here with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to a room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn out clothes from there and let them down with ropes to Jeremiah into the cistern. Ebed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, put these old rags and worn out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so. And they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the ground, out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much that this morning we serve, we worship, we worship, we come to, we adore a God who sees us, a God who seeks after us, and a God who serves us. We thank you for the story of Ebed Melech as someone who was a mystery that you make known to us. As someone who was an outsider that you showed was a part of your family of faith. As someone that we know little about, but whose testimony and witness now goes on. God, we thank you that you saw him, that you sought after him, that you saved him. But God, we thank you that in his story, we're also reminded that Jeremiah in the pit is not forgotten, he's seen by you. That Jeremiah in the mud is not forgotten, he's sought by you. That Jeremiah, who's maybe dying and starving of death, is saved by you. So God, help us now as we go back into the story to be mindful of how good you are and how you work. Help us to know what it means that our God sees us, that our God's with us, that our God seeks us, that our God carries us, that our God saves us, and our God will always be with us, never leaving us, never forsaking us, only holding us close. In your name we pray, amen. So one of the things we want to do here is that we jump in the middle of the story, right? Now, Jeremiah is a tricky book because we're, you know, on this side of history. So we read it from chapter one to the end, right? But most theologians will tell you that, like, the, the order of Jeremiah is not chronological at all. Like, at all. So it's like, if you ever read the Old Testament and you're confused, it's probably because it's not in the order that you're seeing stuff happen, right? So one of the interesting things about Jeremiah is that when we get to this passage, what they're accusing him of right, or actually words that he wrote and spoke to them earlier. In fact, most people think it's Jeremiah 21 that they're re-quoting in Jeremiah 38. So the whole order is just like, in, in Liberia we call it zamze, zamze, right? It's, it means what you think it means. It's just, ah, right? Like, it's, the whole order is just like that. But, but, but I think there's some things that's important for us to kind of have as background and zoom out before we go to the cistern. Number one is, is that Jeremiah, his name, right? It literally means the one God has appointed, right? The one Yahweh has appointed. And that's important because for his entire life, Jeremiah's mission is what? To go to the people and say, listen, we're all going to die if we stay here, right? Like, we are doomed, 
There's nothing we can do. Israel has fallen to Assyria. Babylon is coming. <laughs> we thought Assyria was bad. Israel, I mean, Babylon wiped them out, and they're coming to us, right? Like, like in fact, not only are they going to wipe us out, you know what? God has told me, like, let's just go with it. Let's just give up, right? Like, and go, and, and then when God takes us, he's going to send us into exile, but his promises, he'll bring us back. But this whole fighting is futile, right? And I love stories like this because sometimes I'm just like, God, I don't know if I, I can witness better to you. Like, I don't know how, like, I can tell people about how much I love you and what you're doing in my life. And then I realize that I got it easy, Right? Like, God doesn't send me into the world and be like, you need to tell people they're doomed. Right? Like, what's the message of God? It's all going to burn. <laughs> no hope here. We just, we literally got to go. Right? Like, like, Jeremiah's entire life, that was his message. And, and so theologians have called them the weeping prophet. But if you look through the book of Jeremiah, you see that he didn't just weep. He was persecuted. Here is a person who God appointed to give this hard, hard message, and he gets to be the last prophet before Jerusalem falls. How about that on the resume, right? Like Jerusalem, the city of David, God's great city, and you're on the clock when it falls. With all these kings who are not living as they should, people who are not living as they should, he's the last one before it falls. And because of this message that God appointed him to give, he's ignored by the people, ignored by the kings, ignored by the princes. He's beaten. He receives death threats. He's, he's persecuted. But here's the beauty about God, is that in the entire Jeremiah epic, Right? God is on his side. But the people turn away from him and persecute him. The leaders turn away from him and persecute him. The kings turn away from him and persecute him. Yet God chooses two people outside of Israel, outside of Judah, outside of the faith to save him. Everyone in Israel turns on Jeremiah at some point. Yet it's Nebuchadnezzar, right? The literally conquering hero. The king who's going to wipe them out, he saves Jeremiah one time. And the other person is the African servant named Ebed-Melech. And that's inspiring to me because it's a reminder that God's people are often deeper than I can see. That God's people are not limited to who I define as in and out, right, as if I hold the keys to heaven, right? That God's people is all nations, all tribes, all tongues. That, that Nebuchadnezzar could be one of his saviors is also fascinating because the Babylonians are not known, right, for their gentle spirits. They're not known for conquering happily, right? There's no happy way to conquer. They definitely were the opposite of whatever you think happy conquering is. But yet this message that Jeremiah would give would fall on deaf ears. It was a people who sinned, who ignored and disobeyed God, who started worshiping other gods, started worshiping Baal. But here's the thing about Jeremiah. He even ups the ante, right? Not only is he saying we're doomed, they're going to take over us, we're going to lose our land, and we'll talk about the significance of that. But one of the things he accuses Israel of is not just that they're worshiping Baal, but that Israel, the people of God, are offering up their children as sacrifice to Baal. This is something that Israel looked down upon their neighbors for. And Jeremiah is saying that we're doing it too. We're offering up child sacrifices in the land of God. So needless to say, he did not have many friends. Right? So Jeremiah is in the scene where he's trying to say, listen, we know that God is good. God is on our side. We know that God can forgive us, but we got to ask for forgiveness. We got to come back to God. And then if you're ready to even accept that part, you also got to know that our sins going to have consequences. And the consequence here is that they were going to lose their land. 
they were going to lose their protection from God. The promised land that God had gifted them, it was going to be lost. And there's something about the human condition that's scary, but also fascinating. Because when Jeremiah is preaching this, a lot of times we think about prophecy as like it's way out there. It's coming, right? Like, like Micah says, the Messiah will come. We're like, yeah, it might take a couple hundred years, but he's coming, right? Jesus says, I'll come back again. We don't know when he's coming back. But you have to understand that Jeremiah is the last prophet before Jerusalem falls. He's up against the clock. So when he's telling them, and that's why I think it's, it's, it's kind of scary about the human condition and how we're so blind to the things of God or so blind to the reality around us, we sometimes need people from the outside. Like, this is what's happening when he's saying we're going to lose. Israel has already fell to Assyria. Like, it's already happened. He's not, made, he's not been like, hey, we need to be, like, Babylon's coming. It's not like, oh, well, they'll come in a couple hundred years. Israel has already fell. In fact, depending on your, your, your theologian or scholar, they'll say that not only has Israel fall to Assyria, but Babylon has also taken over Assyria, right? So, like, it's, it's not even like the war is way there. Like, it's, it's here, right? It's almost like we're in Harrisburg, and the world is in Camp Hill, and he's like, the war is coming. We're like, yeah, it's the whole river, you know? Like, we're good. Like, no one crosses the river, right? Like, it's literally next door. And so, when by the time... Uh, 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 Babylon is coming. He's giving them this message. It's like, listen, they're coming. They're here. They're taking over all these towns, right? But here's the other cra- like wild thing to me is that <laughs> I say this all the time, and I really mean it. Most good things are from Africa. And the thing, you laugh, but it's true. It's true. But, like, the other fascinating thing about Babylon coming is that the only hope that Israel has now is not in God, for Israel has turned her back on God, right? The kings have turned their back on God. But the only hope they had was Africans. It was Egypt. And so here in the story before Jeremiah 38, what had happened is that Babylon's coming close and close and close, and one of the kings of Egypt remembers, oh, my goodness, one of my grandparents or great-grand, somebody in this line made a deal with Israel and Judah. We have to go fight for them. So Egypt actually sends a, a, a group of people to hold off Babylon for a little bit. And they did well, right, until they realized, wait a second, these are the guys who wiped out the Assyrians. Judah, you're not that big. We'll, we'll see you later. Good luck, right? So the Egyptians pull out. So again, the, the march of Babylon is coming upon Jerusalem, and yet the people don't see it. So by the time we get to 38, right, Jeremiah is still going strong. He's like, listen, we lost the battle. I don't know why you're gathering up your little soldiers here. Like, we're going to lose, right? And and so these guys that get together, these officials, right, some translations call them princes because I think they want us to know that, like, this isn't just, like, a bunch of rich people, right? This isn't just a bunch of, like, random people getting together. In fact, in Jeremiah 21, these are some of the same leaders. When the people didn't listen and the king didn't listen, these are the -the in-the-know powerful people Jeremiah goes to and says, listen, I need y'all to get on the same page because, like, Babylon is coming and God has promised us, like, if we just trust him and let them take over the land, we're only going to go away for 70 years. So what happens 17 chapters later? They take the letters he wrote, the sermons he's preached, they bring it back to the king and they say, hey, king, Jeremiah, we ought to kill him for treason. He is not only discouraging the troops, but he actively is saying we ought to throw the white flag. He wants to give up, and it's not good. And here's one of the most, I think, harshest things you can say to a prophet in the Old Testament, right? He says not only is he treasonous, not only does he have lack of faith and he's causing the people not to believe and he's scaring the people, right? He is not good for shalom. 
in, I think it's verse 4, it's like he's not good for the people or good for the welfare of the people. Now, this is interesting to me because Jeremiah, in one of his famous sermons, you've probably heard of it. It's one of the few chapters we actually read in Jeremiah 29, right? Right? I guarantee within the last year you've written this on a card to someone. I know the plans the Lord has for you, plans to prosper you. Yeah, yeah you know that one, right? Like, but in that chapter, Jeremiah is saying, listen, same message, Babylon's coming. <laughs> We're going to fall. But here's the thing is no matter how dark it gets, God's going to be with us. And God wants us to actually do what? To go there and seek the prosperity, the peace, the welfare, the shalom of Babylon even when we go. Jeremiah's entire life wasn't just saying, hey, Babylon's coming. It was saying that we have lost shalom with God because we've disobeyed God. We've sinned against God. We've sinned against neighbor. We're doing all these things by ignoring God. We ought to be fighting for the shalom of God. And now they take his life work and message, and that's what they accuse him of. They're like, you know what? Not only is he telling us we're going to die and we shouldn't listen and we should give up, he's breaking the shalom of the people. And that's what they claim against him. And they bring it to this king, Zedekiah, who's a very interesting guy. Because I think his first name was Mathaniah. I got to learn how to say that one, right? But his first name is fascinating to me because it meant God's hope or God's gift. Yet when Nebuchadnezzar comes on, he looks at him, he's just like, no, 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 no. You're not God's hope. You're not God's gift. You know what you are? You're Zedekiah, right? And most of us are like, well, all right, that's just another Hebrew name, right? No, no. He's saying, you are God's righteousness. And that's significant. It's significant because in the Old Testament, names, right, they denote significance. They, they tell something about you. So, for example, Isaac means what? Joy, laughter. Remember the story when the, the angels come down and said, like, yes, Sarah, we get it. You're old. You're very old. You've been trying. You've given up. But God's going to send you the son, right? And she laughs, right? And I think God has a sense of humor. God's like, you want to laugh? We're going to call you son laughter. Every time you see him, not only are you going to smile, but you're going to have to say laughter. Every time you see him, you want to laugh at me? Let's laugh all the time, right? I don't think God's petty. I just think it's humorous, right? And oh, another one is Esther, right? Like In some translations, her name means secret. And isn't that her whole life? Right? She's hidden away in secret in exile, right? She's found and joins the king's harem, basically. And then when, even when she becomes queen, she has this secret of, like, do I tell him I'm one of these hated Israelites? Do I tell him this secret? Do I trust this king who could kill me just for walking into the room? And she only finds peace when she realizes that God is her king. And by her faith in God, she can have the boldness to not only give the message, but fight for her people, right? And her name means secret. David means beloved, right? The man after God's own heart. And there's one thing we can say about David. He was a lover, not a fighter. You'll get that one later. But names indicate significance. I thought about this two ways, right? We have two people on staff who just recently had babies. God bless them. It's great. It's wonderful, right? But a lot of times with parents and naming kids, right, like it could be a tension thing. I don't know about some of y'all. We didn't have any tension, but some of y'all might have, you know. But imagine you worked really hard to get a piece, and this is the child. You're like, this is the name we have for the child, right? And you have that name, the child's growing up, and someone comes from the outside and be like, yeah, I don't really like that name. This is their new name, right? Like this is what happens to Zedekiah, right? So that's the first part about it. Like in an Israelite culture where names indicate significance, they literally snatched up his name and said, no, 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 no. You're not God's hope. You're God's righteousness because you haven't lived right. So that's what he has to wear around going around, right? The other thing about Zedekiah is that he's kind of a, a precursor to a guy we learn in the story of Jesus named Pontius Pilate, right? A guy who can look at the person who's on trial not really see him as truly guilty, but then what does he do? He washes his hands, 
yet still allows the, the people on the outside to literally lead the decision. And that's what Zedekiah does here, right? He, he's been set up as Nebuchadnezzar's puppet king. So Nebuchadnezzar has conquered a bunch of, of, of Israel, a bunch of Judah. He's getting to Jerusalem. He's like, he actually takes a king at the time who is um, Zedekiah's uncle, puts him into exile, puts him on the throne, and be like, you just stay there, keep it warm until I get there, right? And, and so this king, though, basically says, you know what? I, I, I'm not going to kill him, but y'all do whatever you see fit. Now, this is where it gets interesting, because they take Jeremiah, and they throw him into a cistern. There's a lot of people who've been thinking about, like, why didn't they just kill him, right? I think it's because as much as they didn't follow God, they still knew God was God, right? Like, you can beat him, you can jail him, you can persecute him, you can oppress him, but if you kill the prophet of God, that's a different kind of, especially, like, in those Old Testament early times, right? Like, a different animal to, to work with, right? But I think they do something even more evil than actually killing him. Could you kill him? No suffering. He's done. He's in heaven with God, right? They decided they're going to put him into a cistern. What were cisterns? They were literally used for two things, right? They were either you would collect the rainwater and you would use it as excess water, or the rich people, like the guy in the story, Malkijah, whose cistern it is, they might even use it as a toilet. So what they decide is that instead of killing him, we're going to starve him out. I don't know if you know anything about starvation, but that's one of the worst ways you can possibly go. And even worse than that, we're going to throw you into a dark pit. We're going to cover it up. All you're going to be in is mud and mire. And if there's a chance that Malkijah, who some translation calls him the secretary of state, which I find hilarious, only because I don't know if ancient Judah had a secretary of state. You know, I think they're just trying to say he's important, right? Like wherever secretary of state is in the, the, the line, you know, of leaders, like he's high up there, right? But it's like that's where they decide to put him. Because they said, no, we're not going to kill him. But if he happens to starve or die of disease or some animal happens, then, then that's what kills him, not us, right? So, like, they actually come to a point that's like, that's what we're going to do. Until a guy named Ebed Melek shows up. Now, I have to ask for forgiveness. The first time I met Ebed Melek or I heard about Ebed Melek, I got it wrong. Because I read this story and I was so excited. I'm like, he's from Kush. He might be a sub-Saiyan African. This is awesome, right? I just assumed and I read kind of Acts 8 into it, right? Because in Acts 8, we meet another Ethiopian eunuch, right? And, and that one is actually a servant of the Kandaki, which is the queen, right? A queen of a very vast area in Africa. But Ibn Melek wasn't a servant of anyone in Cush. And the way we know is because his name is what? Ibn Melek, which is what? Hebrew. So it means that this African, this outsider, this mysterious man had somehow, someway come into Israel chosen to follow Israel's God, and somehow, someway had enough of influence that Zedekiah, who wasn't following God, trusted him enough to bring him into the family, to bring him into the courts, right? So ebed Melek isn't a servant of anyone in Cush or Africa. He's actually in the, the, the office or in the, the, the service of Zedekiah. And that's fascinating to me because this servant of the king, this Ethiopian brother, this dark-skinned African, this Cushite, he walks up and is going to challenge Zedekiah in public. So he's a Cushite. Now, there's some people who say he might have been a eunuch, right? And this is also tricky because eunuchs back then were in charge of taking care of the king's harems. There's nothing good about that part. Like, like, like I know people who are trying to like, redeem it. No, nothing redemptive about that. But the thought was, you know, I need somebody to watch over all these women so we would castrate you, right? If there's any kids in here, ask your parents what that is. They'll explain it to you later. Right? But like the eunuchs, the idea was like we want them to not be able to father children so like they can literally just focus on their duty. 
We don't know that. But the earliest um, renderings of this word actually just means official and someone who works in the court. So, for example, Potiphar would have the same word. Potiphar in the Joseph story would be an, uh, a eunuch, right? And it just meant an official in the court. We don't think Potiphar was castrated because he had a wife. But that's, then again, we'll talk about that later, some other time. We'll do Potiphar later, right? But the point is, he was, he was a Cushite. He was castrated. He was connected. And, and what's in, also interesting to me is that Zedekiah would do the business of the day at the city gate. This makes sense, because in the ancient Near East, this is what they did. I think a lot of us have a picture of Solomon when the two ladies have a dispute over the baby, and they come to the palace. But you have to understand that Solomon was wealthy. He was very rich. His palace was amazing, right? So, like, Solomon is not going to sit by the gate and do any business, right? Like, you got to come up the hill, you got to go into the throne room, and you got to go before Solomon. Well, back before Solomon came along, or I guess Solomon's fallen by this point, but it's like now what they did is like they would literally sit on the city gate, and that's where all the business was done. So if you happen to steal your neighbor's oxen, everybody's going to know, right? Because it's like the king is sitting on top of the gate, and you go there. So Zedekiah is sitting there, and and, and, and Melek shows up, and Ebed Melek is like, listen, your people, your officials, they've done this great evil. They've taken the prophet of God and put him into the pit. Like, this is not good. And somehow, some way, we just have a couple of verses, but whatever he says convinces Zedekiah enough that he sends him with 30 men. Now, some translators say, you know what, I think that's a, a mistranslation, it was three. But I was thinking about it this week, and I was just like, listen, if the Secretary of State of the United States of America happened to jail somebody, and somebody in power like the president says, Hank, go get that person, I'm fairly certain I want more than three people. Right? Like, I'm fairly certain just to be safe. Like, I don't think that's a bad translation. So he goes with these 30. And, and what's fascinating is, like, that's enough to not only get him out of the pit, that's enough to, to, to protect him if anything happens, anything goes wrong. But then something I missed for years. There was one time I was in a sermon, and I just off-mentioned Ebed-Melech. I was just like, yeah, it's fascinating. God uses this African to save him. And, and after church, there's a lady from our church um, comes up to me, and she was just like, oh, you missed my favorite part of the story. I was like, I mean, an African saves a person of God. Like, this is, it's not really getting better than this for me, anyway. <laughs> like, this is pretty, like, this is as good as it gets. There's Jesus saving us, right? Then there's a whole bunch of flows, and it's the African saving us, right? Like, that's, that's like, my, 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 my framework, right? And she's like, no, 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 you forgot my favorite part. And I was like, what's my favorite part? And she said, you know, me and my husband, for years, have been building hospitals across Africa, and one of the things we found about people who are, are hurt or bruised or people who have all, all, all signs of things that we don't know what's going on is that we actually look for old rags and, and clothes to kind of cover up the wounds so that when we're tending to them, we don't do more harm than good before that wound starts to heal. And I'm not a doctor, so I'm not following her at all. I'm like, well, that sounds cool. I'm glad you take care of your patients, you know? And she's like, no, but think about it. I was like, well, I'm obviously not thinking about it. <laughs> like, but she was like gracious. And she was like, think about it, right? Jeremiah is thrown into the pit. I'm like, yes, I got that part, right? And she's like, I'm guessing they didn't like place him down nicely. I'm like, oh, you're right. You know, they probably threw him down into the pit. And we don't know how deep the pit was. We know that there's mud at the floor, but we don't know if it was stone all around, right? We also don't know how long he was in the pit. We don't know if diseases had started. We don't know how battered and bruised he was. And she said, isn't it beautiful that Ebed-Melech doesn't just go to save him. 
he's conscious enough of his condition that he wants to save him without causing more harm to him. So Ebed-Melech is like, let's find some old rags that we can wrap up on the rope so that as we pull him up, right, we're not hurting him more. And if he's battered up and bruised, we can cover up the bruises until we lift him up out of the mire. What a beautiful lesson. Because there's a lot of times that God's going to give us opportunities to help people who are in pits. And it might not be a physical pit. It might be a mental, an emotional, a spiritual pit. But the reminder of Ebed-Melech to us is that we ought to do the work of not causing more harm in the name of help. Of not injuring people by saying we're helping them. Right? Like, it's not help at any cost. Like, if you're doing more injury then good, in the name of help, are you really helping? So it's a beautiful story of Ebed-Melech not only serving and, and, and being this wonderful, beautiful servant, but he's so conscious, so in tune with the suffering of Jeremiah that he's like, I'm going to go save my brother, but I'm not going to do it in a way that harms him. And that challenges me. And I hope it challenges you as you have opportunities to help, as you have opportunities to reach out to people. Are you doing it in a way that is not causing more harm? Are you doing it in a way that's protecting whatever harm they're bringing in? Are you doing it in a way that's restoring them and lifting them out of the mire? Are you doing it in the way of Ebed-Melech? So as I think about this legend, as I think about this story, there's four things I think would be helpful for us to hold on to as we come back to this story, or if you read it on your own this week, or for the rest of your life. There's four things I think is really good for us to hold on to. The first thing I think this story really teaches is that following God faithfully does not eliminate darkness. Just because you love God and you're following God does not eliminate darkness. And I know for some of us who grew up in the church, that might be a new message. Because we heard that when darkness comes on us, it's because we have sinned. It's because we haven't trusted God enough. It's because we don't love God enough. That's why we're struggling, because God is, is showing punishment on us. No, we live in a fallen world. There's darkness all around us. There's darkness that's been done to us. There's darkness that even lives inside of us. If you're in a pit this morning, it's not because God is punishing you. It's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because you don't love God enough. It's not because, you know, like, like you've somehow earned this suffering. It's just that the world is not as it should be. That sin has brought darkness and that we got to fight in this darkness. Following God does not mean that darkness is not going to come. But it does mean that in the dark, that God gets to be our light. And I want you to hold on to that darkness because we're going to be talking about darkness a lot this first six months, right? But following God does not eliminate that darkness. The second thing I think that might be helpful for us to hold on to is simply this, right? No matter how strong, no matter how powerful, no matter how paralyzing our fears make us, right? Fear is not as powerful as your faith. Fear is not as powerful as your faith. Because here's the thing, your fear can be this big. All your faith has to be is this big. If you have that little faith of a mustard seed, right, that's all you need. How amazing it is that we serve a God who doesn't say, I don't want you to doubt. I don't want you to fear. I don't want you. God says, bring your doubts to me. Bring your fears to me. Just give me a little bit of faith. That's all I need, a little bit of faith, and that's enough. 
That's enough to get you through the now. That's enough to get you through today. That's enough to make you help see tomorrow. All you need is a little bit of faith, right? Your fears can be as giant as they are. That little pebble that slew Goliath, right? That little mustard seed that grows into a big tree. All God wants from you is just a little faith. Do you trust me? Do you trust me now? Do you trust me in this? That's the question he asked me, and it might be the question he's asking you. But don't let your fears be so big that you think they're more powerful than your faith or even that they're more powerful than our God. The third thing I want us to hold on to, and I think this is what I love about the story of Ebed Melech, and it's a forever truth, is that God needs all of us to do the work of God. God needed Jeremiah. He was the only one, right? Like, God needed Jeremiah to be like, listen, we are going to fall. Like, like I am going to send you away, and I'm going to bring you back, but for 70 years, you're going to be away. You're going to fall. Because you've sinned against me, you have these consequences. But I'm so glad that Ebed-Melech existed too, that he was able to listen and be in tune with the Spirit, that he was able to say, no, it doesn't matter that I'm an outsider. doesn't matter that I'm an African. doesn't matter that I'm not powerful. doesn't matter that I'm not rich. All I know is what they've done is wrong, and I need to go stand up and fight for my brother. And I think that's beautiful because all of us can only reach the people we can reach. There are people in your lives that need you to be a healthy witness. There's people in your life who need you to be a reminder that God loves them. There's people in your life who need to be a reminder that God is real. And only you can reach those people. God needs all of us to do the work of God. Why? Because we are the family of God. Ebed-Melech was able to trust God and trust the message of God that came through Jeremiah. And so this reminder of family for me isn't just, hey, we're all in this together, kumbaya. It's that we're all in this together. And if we're all willing to trust God together, on Monday, I might have a mustard seed, you might have a, a pebble, but our sister might have a crater. <laughs> together, we're stronger. Together, our faith is made complete. Not just with us and each other, but with the Holy Spirit with the witness of the saints over the years, with the witness of the saints now. And is that trusting God in the message of God that God uses to save Jeremiah, to bring Ibed-Melech into the kingdom, and to remind us that all of us belong. Amen? This morning we're going to close our service with communion. Um, as you came in, hopefully you were able to get some of the elements at the door. If not, I think the deacons are at the door. So if you raise your hand, someone will come around and give you like the, the elements. Or if you have time, you can go back and grab one. Um, I'd like to ask the musicians to come up as well. Uh, for us, you know, we, 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 as we come to this table, we invite anyone who believes in Jesus and belongs to the family of Jesus. You don't, you're not required to be a member of the Brethren in Christ or even this Brethren in Christ church, but we do require, or God does require, that you belong to, to Christ's church together. Um, Pastor Linda and I will be doing the liturgy together. Um, so if you need anything, again, raise your hand and we're going to get started. We now invite you to come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. We come to testify not that we are perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. We come not because we are strong, but because we are weak, not because we have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty, 
we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. We come not only to remember his death, but also his resurrection and promise to return. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before us, let us lift up our minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to us the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Please join us now together in the responsive reading for communion taken from Philippians 2. In our relationships with one another, we should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. He humbled himself and became a servant. He humbled himself even to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. God gave him the name that is above all names. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue should confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. One way that we confess that Jesus is Lord is to share in the Lord's Supper together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to this table grateful for you, grateful for your sacrifice, grateful for your love, grateful for your mercy, grateful that you are allowed to be broken so that we can be healed, that you suffered so that we can be set free. Lord Jesus, our Christ, we thank you that in your death, in your sacrifice, we can now have life. That you who left heaven to come to earth has made it possible that we can be united to God forever. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you so much that you freely and willingly chose to love us, even to death on the cross. To remember your death at this table now. Grateful for you and blessed by you and loved by you. Lord, thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. My sisters, and, oh, now the response of reading. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break is it not the communion of the blood of Christ. This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. same way after the supper Jesus took the cup which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing and he told his disciples this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me let's pray as we uh, hold our cup this morning, Lord, we think about the blood that you shed for us. We um, are reminded of those hymn words, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. It's our sin, Lord, that caused your sorrow, that caused your suffering, but it's your love that um, provides forgiveness and healing and wholeness for us. We thank you this morning. As we think about your blood, we also recognize, God, that it's in your blood that we're knit together, that the, the very word brethren, brothers and sisters, means blood brothers and sisters. So it's in your blood that we're knit together with one another. We thank you that you've provided for us 
brothers and sisters to help us walk in faithful ways with you, to help spur us on to love and good deeds. We pray that as we um, take the cup today, that we would meditate on all that you've done for us in it. Amen. Let's do the communion response for the cup. My sisters and brothers, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. I can't hold the cup and the mic. Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Amen. Um, at this time, as the worship team closes with um, Jesus Paid It All, um, I'd like to invite you to stand and sing with us. Um, we want to also invite you up for prayer. You know, the pastors in the room will be up front. If there's anything you want to either respond to the service or something you need prayer for, we'd love to pray for you for that as well. Um, as we sing this song, we'd be reminded uh, of Jesus, the ultimate servant, who gave it all. Um, the all that allows us to be here, the all that allows us to be family, the all that allows us to do the work with him. So let's stand together and sing. Oh 